Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. and welcome to Past Imperfect, an association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is an explorer, adventurer and global television presenter who was the youngest Briton to climb Mount Everest. A self-proclaimed failure at school, he joined the SAS before becoming the country's chief scout and he's made it his mission to lead us all away from our risk-averse lives. Edward, or Bear Grylls, as he's universally known, has brewed catnip tea with Barack Obama in the wilds of Alaska and munched rat's brain with Julia Roberts in Africa. His TV series teach everyone from presidents to scouts how to survive in the wild. The ninjas of the future, he said, are going to be those who can learn how to navigate the fear Bear Grylls, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. Is it true that the only food you won't eat is lentils? <laughs> um, I, I'm not a big, huge fan of lentils, <laughs> but um, I have quite an unusual way of living and eating that's probably not to everybody's taste. But, um, but yeah, I predominantly eat red meat, liver, dairy, honey, fruit and eggs. Not a vegan then. So, no, although ironically, I did many years ago write a book on veganism and I've learnt, I've learnt, yeah, life is a journey, but I do feel a little bit kind of, I feel a little bit guilty that I wrote that book. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, I do think life is a journey and we're always learning, aren't we? So, so yes. <laughs> so is that sort of caveman food? Um, yeah, I guess so. I think sort of. I try and focus on, on natural stuff, things that I just think so much of the processed food is full of so much stuff that is terrible for the environment and terrible for our health. So I always try and eat like our ancestors. And I think if you go back traditionally, you know, we, we, would, we would feed off meat, you know, and we'd have, we'd have pick the berries and we'd have the fruits. And if times were lean, on the savannah, you'd root around for a few roots and grubs and that sort of stuff and leaves, but really it was survival food and what allowed us to really, our brains to grow and, and us to really thrive is when we, when we were having a lot of organs and, and if you look at a lot of blood and a lot of meat and if you look in nature, it's all around us, isn't it? I mean, look what the lions do. They go straight for the blood and the soft organs. And <laughs> yeah, so I... I don't know. It's, it's you make quite, it sound so appetizing. Well, I cook it up in a really delicious way. I mean, it's, I actually look back, I think, gosh, you know what? My grandfather, who lived to be 90-whatever, he used to have bacon and butter and eggs every morning of his life. I don't know. All this stuff to me is linked. And I think we all have lots to learn from ancestral type of living once you go back thousands of years. But anyway, there you go. There's my, there's my kind of long-winded way of saying um, I'm not a huge fan of lentils. <laughs> and you were christened Eddie and then Teddy and then Teddy Bear and then Bear by your sister. We want to take you back to your childhood. Were you a very robust child? Were you quite cuddly and small and Teddy Bear-like? Well, my older sister was eight years older and my mum had three miscarriages before me. So I think by the time I came along, my sister was just super excited to have a... A playmate um, and always growing up my sister's much more extrovert than me I was always much quieter you know very happy going and making dens down the end of the garden and climbing trees and trying to drag my dad off to go and make something or 
you know, climb up some of the little sea cliffs where I was brought up in the Isle of Wight. And that for me was my escape. My sister was always much more kind of just excited to, to have a younger brother, was always dragging me around, always going, bear, uh, uh, eat this raw bacon and dance like a seal to my friends. <laughs> and I'll give you, I'll give you 10p and I, uh, okay. You know, so um, I'm not sure I was, I don't think I was called bear because of being particularly cuddling. I, th- I think she you was were her plaything. She was her play. I basically, I was her teddy bear. Yeah. That, that, that's exactly what I was. <laughs> and your father was the Tory MP, Sir Michael Grills. Did he make you very adventurous or was that growing up on an island that made you want to explore? Well, my dad had been a Royal Marine commando when he was young. And, um, and I think that sort of spirit of adventure always stayed with him. You know, he did lots of other jobs afterwards. He, he ran a wine bar. You know, he did, I mean, he did lots of different things, but he ended up working in politics. And having a dad who essentially had been a commando was definitely a big influence for me. As I started to grow up, I thought, you know, I was reading commando comics and thinking, this is amazing and, and can't believe my dad did all of this stuff. And I was always dragging him out saying, come on, let's go and, let's go and do some of this. And, uh, and I was brought up in the Isle of Wight, which you guys will know, but it, it always had, in, in the summer, it was like a holiday camp. It was just full of people. But in the winter, it was, everyone left and it was windy and rainy and we'd go and climb on a lot of these sea cliffs and I go back to them now and, you know, they're nothing big. They're, they're, they're 100 foot high and, and just steep. But as a kid with my dad, it felt like I was climbing the biggest mountains of the world. I loved it. I loved that connection to him. I loved the fact that, you know, we clamber over the top of these things and there'd be some old lady sat on the bench on the sea cliffs going, it's totally irresponsible. You dragging your poor son up this sort of thing. in the (laughs) But I don't know. I loved it. It was my way of being close to him. And it's where I first got that real adventure sort of bug of loving being outdoors and and loving a bit of bad weather and in, and loving being pushed a bit and a little little bit scared you know so it was a big part of my upbringing with him and i think the island life just enhanced that you know it was, we were always tinkering around making making a little boat or trying to cross the harbor <laughs> you know and do fun things but um yeah, I look back, he's no longer alive now, but I look back with so much gratitude, really. He was a wonderful dad and a kind dad and always encouraging to go for things. And that mattered much more than necessarily good school reports that I didn't always have. And uh, I wish I could have said to him more that actually you got the important things right and and thank you. And you wrote once that your dad was this most lovely dad and cosy and kind and loving. But do you think he was also as well a role model for you? Someone who you'll always try and look up to? Um, maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always hard, isn't it, looking, looking back? But I don't know, my, my overriding sense is that he loved adventure and he loved just being together. And, uh, and I think those two things have been driving forces in my life. They, re- they really have. It wasn't so much that, you know, I did look up to him. I did. But I, it was more that I, I wanted to be with him. And I loved just being with him. And adventure seemed to be the gateway to that for me. And what about your mum? You, you once said that she was quite unusual and she had some mental health issues. How did that manifest itself? Well, mum, mum's still alive and is amazing. And I'm always sort of, I'm always protective talking about her stuff. But she's great. She's amazing. She's a force of nature. She still lives in the Isle of Wight. She is loved by many. She is, but she's definitely an eccentric, you know. And and, and I look in back. In what way? Up, I look back growing up now and, and, and think a lot of the things were quite unusual in the sense that she'd take a copper rod and stand in the middle of the flower bed outside at home in a thunderstorm. And she's going, I love it. I'm grounding myself in the pouring rain. Oh. She, would, she would come to like football matches if, or, you know, when I was at school and she would just lie under the trees and just lie there prostate and she'd be like that for two hours. <laughs> you know, she's quite eccentric. She still swims in the sea to this day. And yeah, she's just a great eccentric. She's a strong lady of faith. Uh, She's got a small community of friends, but she's always just been quite eccentric. And I think 
I think my dad definitely kept a bit of a lid on that with my mum. And I think after he died, I think there wasn't so much of that to keep in check. <laughs> so she definitely became a little bit more eccentric. But she's a wonderful, been a wonderful mum. She's got a great heart, as I say, loved by many. And as I've got older, I've learned to love her eccentricities. I mean, when I was younger, I found them harder. I found it kind of, you know, because I was much more introverted, I found it... I don't know, I, I, I struggle more with that. But as I've got older, I've realised, you know, what life is... Life, you've got to just... It's, it, what a gift to be able to be yourself. Just be yourself. And it's that thing, I read in a newspaper the other day, a 104-year-old lady being interviewed, and they said, what's the best thing about being 104? And she goes, no peer pressure. No peer pressure. <laughs> and, it's, and she's so right. It's like you wear your whole life just to be able to be yourself. And, and I think the game of life is to try and learn it early, regardless of our peers. And, and I look at my mum and I think, good for you. you. You're truly yourself. Eccentric, but yourself. And then you were sent to boarding school at eight, which must have been really difficult, particularly because you obviously had very caring, if eccentric, parents to be separated so young. How did you cope with that and how did your parents cope? Well, I probably didn't cope with it very well and I don't think they cope with it very well. And it's this whole thing of boarding school and, and being sent away. And, you know, and I'm always sort of cautious not to sort of blame stuff on boarding school or say it was too awful or you know because the truth is super lucky it was private school you know my mum and dad worked so hard to be able to send me there and it was amazing it was in so many ways it really was amazing and it's definitely was never a fault of the school any struggles I have was never a fault of the school all the good friends I made from the school which many of those friendships last to today and are wonderful but it doesn't take away from the fact that I do think it eight in those days where it was very much you were dropped off of school and that was it you know you see them at see them you know at half terms and that sort of stuff and there was there wasn't much interaction between there it was definitely felt a really young age at that time and i i got really homesick in the early days and i just remember seeing my parents leaving in floods of tears and me in floods of tears and thinking what part of what part of nature says this is a great idea but you know, as I say, many people have it way tougher. I look back and the predominant feeling of is actually I was so lucky and I made many great friends and um, and a little bit of kind of those tough times. Everybody has tough times, don't they, growing up and at different times at school and I wasn't abnormal like that, I don't think. So were you called by your surname and a number, even at eight? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 100%. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot, I mean, there was... I look back now and I remember when they'd, when they'd do the exams at the end of term, they'd, they'd read out the, from the bottom to the top and they start with 250 and they've changed it. I mean, the schools have got, schools now are amazing. All of their pastoral care is so amazing. But in those days, they had a thing called GTFs, which stood for general total failures. And, uh, <laughs> and the bottom, like two or that's what I'm getting to. The bottom two or three people were always GTS. And I remember once being a GTF and it was like a mortifyingly embarrassing moment, you know. And um, But then again, maybe it gave me a fire, you know. Maybe I never was, I was many things at school, but I was never complacent. And, you know, and it was never all easy and I never sat on my laurels of anything. I didn't have any laurels. I, you know, I was, I was a general total failure. But, but... You know, some of my friends sometimes listen to this and they go, no, Bay, you were, you were great at sport and you had great friends. And they're right. I, I loved the sport and I had many good friends. But, but I still don't think I was a natural fit at school and I struggled being away from, as you say, a close family. And, and I wasn't a superstar in any way. I, didn't, I definitely wasn't the best or the strongest or the cleverest or the smartest or the most musical or good-looking or... And with three young boys now today, I'm always saying this to them. You know, it's, it's, you don't need to be the superstar. You, in fact, you don't want to be the superstar because the one muscle that you're going to need for life, which is that inner effort muscle, the resilient, the never give up muscle, that will get weak. You might get all the trophies and have the outer muscles, but your, your inner one won't be strong. And for life, you need the inner one. So they hear me say this often to them before going off to school. 
And then at 13, when you were sent to Eton, you said, I wish I'd been taught the stuff that really matters. What do you think they should have taught you? I think that effort is king. And uh, the, na- the things that are God-given, like talent, academics, looks, shouldn't be the things to be primarily celebrated at school. And nobody taught me that. So I grew up thinking in life you've got to be talented and if you're not you have to pretend you are you have to be good looking and if you're not you have to do something to make yourself good looking you have to be clever to get to the top and if you're not clever shit well you're in trouble you know and and life and experience over many years has actually turned that on its head because those things can be a huge hindrance you know actually the one thing that matters you know you've got to learn to get on with people you've got to build teams you've got to you've got to you got to be dogged and go through the door of failure repeatedly. you got to be determined. you got to be kind. I mean, who talks about... I never had a kindness cup at school. You know, but I saw a lot of cricket cups. I never saw an unsung hero or epic effort cup or a, or, a, or a quiet but don't get noticed and don't do brilliantly in my grades but I'm trying so hard cup. You know, so these, these are the things I feel that life has taught me rather than school and if i can ever have a influence for young people which is a great privilege through the scouts and and the chief scout stuff are doing many other things is is to be able to say if you're not that superstar it's okay in fact it's more than okay you're gonna soar because i bet your inner effort muscle like you said in that introduction is ninja strong because nobody's ever noticed you but you're still going wow i mean you must be strong if you're still going and you've never received any praise or cup because you're not the cleverest or the sportiest. But you're in good shape for life. So, And therefore, what's great about all of this is that anyone can do it. It doesn't just have to be the good-looking person. You know, what happens if you're not? You know, mm-hmm. this says any of us, whoever we are, whatever we look like, whatever God-given talents, whatever God-given brain, whatever, you've got one arm, you've got one leg, well, whoever you are, whatever creed, whatever race, whatever part of the world, you have the ability to, to, to fight and to, and to do your best, as the scouts say, that dib, 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 and to follow your dreams and to build teams and to be kind and go for things. That is universal. And that's the thing I believe that schools should really be encouraging, focusing, teaching and resourcing. So why do you think Eton's created so many prime ministers? Does it give a sort of sense of superiority or is it actually inferiority that you've got to constantly prove yourself well i think you've got to rewind that is is does are you saying that's success you know because that's a really good question yeah a lot of people would say it was like to say i mean i could i could tell you another analogy of i remember when i joined the sas at the time or the few years before i joined three out of the four squadrons were commanded by old etonians so the commanding officer was old etonian how does that work in something that is the ultimate meritocracy where the school tie holds no currency, where you can only earn it through blood, sweat, tears and endeavour? And, you know, how does that work? Is it because maybe, you know, some of these schools do breed a real kind of, and this isn't a bad thing, but they do encourage a maverick thinking and a path less trodden and, and you know, you've you got you to fight in life and, and, and maybe... Maybe people, maybe all of us are shaking off some chips on our shoulders, like, actually, we want to prove that wrong. We want to, want to go for things. So in answer to the question, why does it produce what, those sort of people? I think it's a complex answer, but I do think elements of it, as with all champions, you know, you look at somebody who wins Wimbledon or whatever, there's an element of damage that drives great achievements. And, you know, it's a testament to the human spirit. It's a testament to how we're made as humans that we can use damage in our lives to do good things. But ultimately it comes down to us. It's a choice. How do we use damage and fear and things like this that we often learn at young ages? How can we use it for good rather than just to maybe reach the top of the tree and be prime minister for me? How can you actually do it where you use that drive and that focus to serve people to be you know, to be a positive influence in whatever way it is. And one of your greatest achievements at school was climbing the highest spire of the chapel. 
You said this took planning, persistence, courage and commitment. Do you think that's the greatest thing that you took away from Eton in a way, that you managed to get to the very top of the school where no one else had, apart from Ranulph Fines? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's funny. I mean, listen, if that, that's, that probably was my achievement at school and there certainly was no cup for that. And there was nothing, it was never celebrated and, you know, and it's interesting. But I, I had, like we said, I had an upbringing where I was encouraged to follow what I really loved and not be scared to do that. And you might not, might not lead to worldly success, but you're going to be a happy individual. Find what you really love, throw yourself into it, go for it fail stick with it pick that path less trodden you know this was definitely the language that i was brought up with by my dad and i think it goes back to the commando stuff that is definitely the commando ethos of of that thinking man soldier that path less trodden that doing things differently so i look at that time at school and yeah i think those were just an expression me climbing up a spire in the middle of the night with a good buddy it was just me expressing kind of this is what I knew this is what I was brought up to you know I might not be in the first cricket team I might not be getting all the A grades but I've always been told what do you love go for it well I really love climbing and I love climbing with you dad I love that I want to do more of that but I'm not with you but so I'm still going to climb I'm going to climb with my best buddy at night because it's more exciting it's commando style and you know the same language was going on and, and the truth is the same language is still going on today for me in my life. It's why I still love adventure to this day. It's the connection with great people. It's the path less trodden and it's the pushing yourself and the challenge and the knowing that you're going to have to embrace failure. All those things still run thick in my subconscious, I think. Is that also where you put yourself up for SAS selection? You dropped out of university, didn't you? So some people would have seen that as a disaster and a failure, but it, but you made it an advantage. Well, I, yeah, I started at university and I did about three weeks. <laughs> but, oh, you know, hold on, hold on. This is fear talking again. You know, it's not really what I want to do. I, I, I want to join the military. You know, I, I want to try and do something that's, that's even better than my dad had done and uh and i'd met a guy who'd who'd been in the sas when i was about that age when i was like 18 19 and i always thought oh wow i wonder if i could do that and i had i'd done a what they call a scholarship scheme with the royal marines beforehand so my the part the reason i went to university is because i was gonna that was my route to the marines it was to go through that do that scholarship go to the marines and and there we go but I think when I met this guy who'd done the reserve SAS route, I always thought, oh, that would be cool. <laughs> and with my best buddy, we we both decided to go for it together. And for me, it was it, it really fired me up. It was really exciting. It's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to risk it all and go for it. And, and the more people said, oh, you know, only four out of 120 are going to make it, the more I thought, oh, I gotta, I've got to try for it. I was at an age where I wasn't scared of failure. I never had been scared of failure because it was never, never punished in me as a kid when I failed, which was often. So I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen is that I can fail, but I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. And, uh, and I also loved the idea of that I had to join as a private, as a trooper, rather than as an officer. I loved the ethos there. The more I sort of saw of it and studied about it before I even attempted it, the more I, I love the kind of rule breaking spirit and the, you know, you're not going to have to polish your shoes and you can grow a beard and you can be scruffy, but you're going to get very good at your job. And the more I thought this is much more what I love. And um, so I dropped out of uni and, and I went for it. And it was a long process, you know, after and eventually after about nine months, I got about three quarters of the way through it with with this great buddy of mine. And we've been told from day one, you're never both going to pass. You know, four, if four people out of 120 pass, the likelihood of you starting with your best buddy and you both being there at the end is zero. Therefore, I'd really, I'd cut the friendship, you know, don't focus on yourself. And we yeah. could never do that. We were like thick as thieves. We were like, you know, in it up to the hilt together. And, uh, and I've got about three quarters of the way through and I failed at the end of one particularly sort of 
grim long march across the mountains in winter across the Brecon beacons. And I remember being just gutted. I remember in the woods, in the rain, packing my gear up, just sobbing, you know, and, and trucker, my great buddy was there. He go, oh, yeah. you know, he didn't know what to say. And then about five days later, he rang me <laughs> and he had failed as well. And it was like, wow, you know, it's like now we've blown everything because we've dropped, I've dropped out of uni. I've, I've said no to the Marines. I'm going to try for this. I've given all this time, sweat, blood, effort, many months. And, and we're back at square zero, you know, ground zero. And, and that definitely was a low point, but they said to us both, they said, you know what? We think you got what it takes. We don't often invite people to come and try again. Would you both come and try again? I mean, they didn't say it as politely as that, but, um, but the message was that, and we went back and both of us passed second time round. you know, a year later, the two of us were there out of the four that passed and we're still best friends to this day. Godparents to each other's children, see each other all the time. And that, that, that link and that connection and that friendship from, through through failure, through many struggles since, you know, after we passed, that was really the truth of the beginning of the journey. And, and we have many, many tough moments together since. But the friendships and the connection and the adventure was at the root of that. Can you tell us about the sergeant that you had called Chris Carter, who was killed in Afghanistan? You said that he taught you about kindness in the SES. What did he teach and how? Yeah, it's such a nice question to ask. I don't talk about him often, but um, I think it's back to this thing of kindness being something that isn't taught enough in school. And it's king. In life, it is king. It erodes everything else in life if you don't have it. And when you do see it in people, it's beautiful. And I look back to that time with Chris. I mean, he, Chris was... was tragically killed in Afghanistan. But the, the, the time where he taught me about kindness was a time in the desert together where we were a small patrol, four of us. We were meant to be there for like two or three days, max doing a job. And, uh, and we ended up there a lot longer. We ended up there like six or seven days in the heat of the desert. And we were, we were out of water and we had like, our, we had like one liter left between us over the next couple of days before the helicopter would extract us. And I just remember us rationing these capfuls of water in our little shell scrape of this desert hide we were in and literally taking tiny little sips. And at the end of it, we had like a 20K march to get to reach the helicopter extraction. And it was, you know, when you're dehydrated and you're tired and you're carrying a lot of weight, that, that march was one of the, one of the hardest. I'd ever done and I was really I was really on my knees I was really struggling I, I, I was almost unable to keep going really and I remember Chris said he said guys we'll be saving this last cap everyone take their cap last cap of water we'll be rationing it for three days now and we're all down to this last thimble each he said okay it's on the hour time for last thimble let's last push and uh and I remember he knew he was my patrol commander. He knew I was struggling. And, um, and he just, he saw me drink mine and he, he went to drink his own. So everyone thought he'd drunk it. And then he just came over, tipped it. Nobody saw it. He just tipped his into mine. And it was literally a thimble, a thimble. And it, it made no material dis difference to my hydration, but it transformed my performance and my ability to keep going. And, I, I, you know, I feel proud to tell the story of him 25 years later. And, you know, and as I say, he, he lost his life eventually in Afghanistan, but his legacy goes on. And, and that spirit was the spirit that was rich through the special forces of, of humility. You know, he was a true example of humility. And it's not something you necessarily think of always with soldiers, but it's one of the founding ethoses of the SAS, kindness and humility and always going that extra mile. And um, I've never forgotten that. But it can also be incredibly dangerous. And you actually broke your back, didn't you? What happened? I did break my back. I broke my back in three different places in a freefall accident in Africa. Um, I had a canopy that just, just 
just went wrong. It ripped on opening and I came down too fast and in a heartbeat I was too low to, it was getting dark at the time and then I was too low to be able to use that reserve. Tried to land this thing but came screaming in and and then my sort of world went blank, you know, and I'd smashed into the desert and I just remember this blurred journey across trying get getting back to a city, getting back to a town and eventually back to a city and a hospital and uh and a Scottish doctor just sticking the syringe in my back and I was in this old really sort of rusty wheelchair in this hospital in the middle of nowhere and as soon as he stuck it in I thought I'm better I said I'm good to go and I tried to stand up and he said you are not good to go you are oh not goodness. good to go you know and, and that was the start of this long sort of journey eventually back to the UK and I spent many months in rehabilitation in Headley Court which was a military rehabilitation place which is incredible but I'd yeah I'd, I'd broken my back in three different places and really was incredibly lucky not to be paralyzed. I mean, the doctor said I'd been under a millimeter from severing into that spinal cord. It was a, it was a very dark time for me really, because I was in this hospital, unable to move much, strapped up in, in braces and struggling to reach the bathroom without excruciating pain just not knowing what I'm going to be able to do in my life. You know, I, know, I knew I couldn't go back to the, sort of the job I was doing and the squadron I was doing. And it was just a lot of dark nights of the soul lying there trying to figure, figure things out. But, um, you know, life is, life is like that sometimes, isn't it? And sometimes the, the knocks in life are the things that actually become the making of us. You know, the things that feel the hardest and darkest are often the doors to the other things and I look back now and I think that accident actually gave me an incredible fire to to live life and to be so grateful and to know that I've come so close to being paralyzed but actually I'm going to reach that bathroom without pain I'm going to reach the next stairwell and staircase and I'm going to do it I'm going to I'm going to honor the honor the gift and then 18 months later, you actually climbed Everest and you were the youngest Brit ever to have done it. Everyone must have thought you were completely mad when you suggested it having had a broken back. Well, I think that was that was that was the goal. That was the drive. That was me articulating what I just said is that like life's a gift. You've got to go for it. What do you really want? And from a, such a young age, Everest had been a huge dream of mine that I'd shared with my dad, really. He'd bought me a picture of Everest when I was a young kid. I always had it on my wall. Always used to lie there thinking, I wonder if I'd ever, if I could do it. And if I did, what would it be like? And and I think I sort of let that dream go and I left school, joined the army, had been doing that for a few years. And I, I think it was in that hospital that that dream really came back. And it was like, I remember getting that picture back and thinking, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get strong enough. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to reach that bathroom, do the stairwell, and then eventually I'm going to try and stand on top of the world. And it became a huge focus of my recovery every every day. That was the, that was the focus. And I think, like I say, sometimes in life it does take a knock to make us say, you only get one chance at this. You've got to go for it. Don't let those dreams, we all have dreams, and they don't have to be climbing mountains, but we all have different dreams. But I do, they're they're precious. Don't don't let them go. Go for these things. And my sister was angry at the time. She was like, hold on, we've just nursed you through all of this. And now you want to go and take a one in six chance of not coming home again on Everest, which was what the statistics were at the time. But I think also she understood that this is what I really needed to do to re sort of find that identity again and to be able to show, you know, this isn't the end. This isn't the end. My accident is not going to be the end. And I think that's what I really felt and what drove me. Is it the challenge that appeals to you or also the risk or both? Well, I think, I think challenge is a sort of, it's a sort of nice word, but I, I don't think it was articulated as well as that. I mean, it was just like, I want to, I want to show to myself, I can still do this and, 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 and I, I'm going to do it. You know, that, that, that's kind of really what I felt. Risk was part of it. In a way, when I think at that age, risk added to the glamour. 
if I'm honest, if anything, you know, people go the one in six statistic of not coming back alive. And I didn't really understand it. I don't think I think it just sounded just made it all ever more romantic. And I think actually the reality of what happened then on Everest and we had four climbers lose their lives up there, two died of the cold, two fell to their deaths. And I came back three months, you know, we were on Everest for 96 days, I think it was, you know, and it was 18 months after I got out of that hospital. And I really think actually I came back from Everest quite humbled by that mountain and, and not nearly as confident as I went, not nearly as sure of things as I was when I went, not nearly as certain that if you give your all to something, it's all going to work out because life ain't always like that. And actually it sort of rocked a lot of that, that confidence I had, I think, ironically. And it was it's strange, I was speaking to my best buddy who I climbed it with, Mick, uh, just the other day, and he said, you know what, I was, I think he was going, and he's one of the toughest men I've ever met, Mick. He's like hard as nails, never show, shows his emotions at anything. You know, it's like, he's a caricature of it, really. But he said, you know what, I found myself in, um, in the Alps recently, he was climbing and he, he, there was a big avalanche and he was just watching the helicopters from the other side of the mountain. He, he was just observing it from, from quite a few miles away. But he said he was up there just watching the helicopter and the rescue guys going into the avalanche. He said, he, I was just crying and crying and crying like a baby. And he goes, I really think it goes back to so much of what we had on Everest, all those near misses from avalanches and the people who lost their lives. And he goes, Bear, you and me, we got back from that mountain and we bottled it all. And we just like got back into life and went at a million miles an hour down our different routes. And it's funny hearing him saying that 25 years on. And um, anyway, I don't know why I tell you that. I mean, it just shows us life is a journey, isn't it? And all these things come back and work in circles, but got to keep sharing it, I suppose. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the explorer Bear Grylls. Association with Speakers for Schools, the Youth Social Mobility Charity, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the explorer, Bear Grylls. And your dad died when he was only 66. You must have been in your mid-twenties. Was that another moment after Everest when you realised that life was just incredibly short? <laughs> well, you've, 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 hit the two, you've hit the two big ones. You've hit actually the three big ones. You've... you've You've done the failures and the struggles and the dark times, which was definitely failing SAS selection first time. Everest, a lot of the toughest stuff that happened up there. And then, and then my back accident and then losing my dad. That was a real kind of, that was a tough one for me because Shara, my wife and me had just got married. We were super young, really. We were the first of our friends to get married in our early 20s. And her father had... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Had MS for many years, multiple sclerosis. And, uh, and he died in our first year of marriage. And then my father died 10 weeks after that. And it was like, wow, you know, life wasn't meant to be like this. <laughs> 
and we were suddenly looking after our two mums really who were like distraught bereaved and struggling and you know i look so much now of, of you know so many people need the support of their parents in their 20s and i see it so much with i mean our kids aren't that old yet but but i see it with even our sort of peers even when we they were in their 20s how much they lent on their parents just for help you know not just financially for things but just moral support isn't it of like you know should i do this job or should i go that way or what about this girl or this guy or you know we take those things for granted at that parental connection and my mum was my mum was obviously still alive she was great for that but my dad in a way being the one who'd been more of that sort of mentor like that and i think same for shara for both of us losing our dads at that time was a real real dark time where we struggled i think but also it gave me a and i see this a bit more with hindsight but it gave me and i probably wouldn't have recognized it at the time but a fire it gave me that fire to like do you know what this isn't going to be easy and 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 i haven't got that that full back net now and we got a few other people to look look after at the same time and but it's down to me we've got to do this we've got nobody's going to do it for us we've got we've got to do it and we've got to go for it and we're still young and we can fail a bit and we should take a few chances and and i might not have a normal job but it could be great it could be a disaster let's go for it and i think i'm not sure i'd be so brave if i'd that it all happened now but at 24 or 25 you're kind of like you gotta you gotta go for it you gotta as they say climb your mountains when you're young and you and go for these things and life is much more forgiving a failure at that stage of our life and therefore use that use that burn through a few <laughs> get them get them going get them under your belt and if you fail 17 18 19 times you'll eventually hit it and do you ever worry that you are kind of encouraging a sort of hard man alpha male approach to life with all the competitive adventuring and you're testing yourself to the limit it's quite a sort of macho role model you are do you think that's a problem or do you try and also show your softer side gosh what a question i think um i think first of all i, I don't have a competitive adventure side i think it's it's not that's not the driving force the driving force has always been life is life is a battleground you're going to have to fail you're going to you've got it you're going to have a few dreams that will be god-given go for it embrace a failure know the power of connection along the way build teams try and be humble try and be kind be resilient be the most enthusiastic resilient never give up person you've met follow your heart you know i mean are these things macho i don't know i mean it's about language isn't it i mean you can dress it up however you like i mean i can put a softer tone to it or i can put a tone that i understood for me the, the language i was understood was like go for it fail claw your way back drag your sorry carcass through the mud pit and go again you know and you can dress that up in in other language for other people will have language that relates more to them which is like great but i think we've all got to follow our paths and and as i said try and be kind and along the way but um I don't know about is it a is it macho I don't know I'm not quite sure really what that means I think it's a universal I say that to our, our children I say it I say it every day to young scouts who are girls and actually the more language I speak like this the more I see big smiles on their face anyway you know I don't think that's just boy language I think it's young people language of like they want they're ready for the fight the fight of life so I don't know. I don't really know what to say. <laughs> and are you actually counteracting, do you think, some of that toxic masculinity of people like Andrew Tate? Because you are sending a very different message from them. What you're really saying is, is to try your hardest to keep going. You don't have a sort of male-female divide in the Scouts or in your life. And it's not really about dominance. Well, the thing is, it's the divide that is damaging. 
you know the divide is what damages when we always split it like that's male or that's female it's like you know it's like we're all we're all humans we're all in it you know being kind and gentle and respectful is not something just to to give to 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 women it's something to give to everybody you know and 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 we all know bullies in our life and bullies bullies always try and suppress other people bullies always try and put other people down they always inflate themselves overinflate themselves they're often cruel you know those aren't the qualities of a of a real man and they're not the qualities of a real woman either they're not the qualities of a real great human being the great human beings through history are always rooted in humility and kindness and connection they always have a gentle streak gentle but they're also tough they have that streak of steel and in life whether you're male or female you can have both of those you should have both of those you should be the the gentlest kindest person in the room and also the toughest the meanest the 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 most resilient the most determined the the most gritty <laughs> you know you you can be we can be it's how we're designed as humans look at lions you know they're super gentle with their cubs but ferocious when needed when providing and protecting and so i think it's i think any language that divides people is damaging and it's a shame because united we're always so strong and so i think what? when it comes to toxic masculinity or the male thing is it's never about the male or female it's about just treat everybody with love kindness respect and and be and and courage you know that that takes courage it takes a strong human being to to show that and share that so what do you think explains the appeal of someone like andrew tate i find it so baffling why he'd be so popular among teenage boys because i think you can say it's like with all dark forces there's always an element that is right so you can say things that ring true you know you can you can say 99 or 90 things that are kind of kind of right and or maybe maybe 80 things that are kind of ring absolutely true and then you can say 10 things that are a little grayer and then you'll slip in 10 things that are dark and i think many malevolent forces like that work like that in the world i mean the way darkness seeps into society and i think with toxic masculinity you can say you can say one an example of one of the 80s right things would be like you've got it you've got it inside yourself to be strong you can be a man you know that's that's okay you can then have some gray areas which is like you can be the the strongest man out there stronger than anyone else you know because now you're putting some division in it and then you can drop in at the end something that is just wrong you know which is like we're stronger than women or we're better than women and I think when young people are pressurable, you hear the 80 things that are kind of sensible and fine, and you like it, and it's empowering. You'll hear a few grey things, and you'll go, oh, I don't want to, uh, what do, you know. And then you'll hear the odd one, and, and most people are discerning enough to kind of go, that's not right, that's not right. But there are a lot of people, and social media reaches so many people who go, actually, I like that, I like that. And I think our job as parents, as mentors, as leaders in whatever field we are, whether it's teachers, whether it's a scout leader, whether it's an expedition leader, whether it's a soldier, whatever field you are, is to reward character and show what character is and, and try and do it by example. And obviously, listen, we're all going to fail. I fail often like this, but at least have the goals front and center, which is Treat everyone with respect. What do you say to your three boys? Do you talk to them like this? Or do you talk to them about how well they've done in their reports? Are you actually pushing them in various ways? Or do you just climb mountains with them and go off and do things with them like you did with your dad? No, we talk about a lot of this stuff. And, and they, you know, they will... Um, I mean, I think when they're older, if they, somebody said to them, what do your dad say to you every day going off school? They'd roll their eyes, laugh and go, oh, bloody never give up again. <laughs> and I say to them, boys, I don't apologise for it. I don't apologise for it. Not one of them. I don't apologise. That, that, that message, front and centre, keep it front and centre. They know all about the effort muscle. 
triumphing over everything else. And, uh, and you know, I think you, I think it's, you've got to keep articulating the messages, haven't you? you know, it's the, to, do, do your best, the scouts mantra, isn't it? Well, do your best is genius because, mm-hmm. you know, the scouts a hundred years ago, they could have had any motto, but actually it's timeless. And what I like is not be the best. It's not, you have to be the best, which is ultimately divisive language again, because not everyone can be the best cricketer or the best footballer or the A-grade student. However hard we try, I was never going to get an A. You know, I can't, we can't do that. It's, it's divisive language, ultimately. But, but do your best is genius. And it's why the Scouts are so strong around the world. 57 million young people. And it gives those young people who might not be the superstar at school. It gives them a chance to reach your top, to excel, to be somebody, to have that sense of pride and identity. Because they can win things by doing their best, by turning up when nobody else can be bothered. By sweeping the hall at the end of a session. By putting out the chairs, by being kind, by being respectful by listening when they're spoken to, by putting up the hand rather than shouting out. You know, these are things we can all do and it doesn't have to be a God-given talent. So do your best as genius. And it, it, in truth, it answers all of that question you had about the Andrew Tate type thing. You know, do, do, do your best to other people. You know, look, what if I'm that girl and I'm in a position next to her and how can I, how can I, how can I do the best to her? How can... Yeah, I'm going to hold open that door <laughs> or do something nice for her or protect her when somebody else is being a bully or being a little kindness or a little whatever. Stand up for her. You know, that's that's how to be a real man. And you also launched an initiative called Becoming X, which is going into schools, showing children inspirational films by incredibly successful people from different walks of life. Is that also about showing that success can come from anywhere and also you can learn through failure and sort of a different message rather than just exams in the education system? Yeah, it is. I mean, to be honest, this whole conversation we've had is the beating heart of what Becoming X was born out of, which was trying to equip, empower young people with real life skills, stuff that actually is going to help them get ahead. Everything from how to build teams to how to how to deal with social media, how to deal with bullies, how to deal with debt, you know, how to follow your dreams, how to write a CV, how to, you know, all the simple, simplest of stuff that you as a parent, me as a parent, we've learned through failure and we probably still fail at so often because the truth is school and life has never been so competitive uber competitive more than ever the pressures on young people in terms of social media in terms of fears of climate change of war of you name it is we never had this access before it's happening so fast for young people and it's why the anxiety is there and therefore these sort of skills are no longer an add-on they're no longer a kind of oh this would be nice after you've done your a levels why don't you do a little bit about how to get ahead in life you know because we had the luxury of failing more and be able to learn it in life for young people now, it's like you've got to learn it now. If you screw up, you screw up at 18 and monumentally put something horrific on Instagram, you're going to have somebody raising that at a job interview when you're 50. You know, you, you, you've got to learn these skills real time now. You've got schools have a duty of care to teach kids properly about how to learn life skills. They're not just the word life skills, actual life skills skills <laughs> and it's what we try to do with becoming x it's what we are doing it's been put into hundreds and hundreds of schools but the way it's been put in it's been mainly by big corporations recognizing the need in so many young people and the graduates they're seeing for this sort of training and that and now these big companies are sponsoring it into some of the hardest most uh you know uh tougher schools out there around the world to try and you know, it's part of their corporate social responsibility. So it's been a nice sort of coming together of, of the corporate world and also young people in education. But we're only really just starting out with Becoming X. It's had a, a profound effect on so many people. And I get letters every day, every day, and going, thank goodness somebody's actually articulated what we're trying to say to our kids into an actual program. And we've just tried to interview some of the great, uh, the great figures of the world from astronauts to Nobel 
prize winners to actors to veterans to all sorts you know and just said what's really helped you in your life tell me about the struggles as well the failures how, how have you really got to the top and their stories are poignant beautiful and powerful so that's been our, our effort to bring into the education system and you've talked about your role models. You talk about the Scarlet Pimpernel and Robin Hood and George Mallory. But you also say that John the Baptist was a role model. Do you still have a very strong religious belief? I, I still have a strong faith. I, I, I wouldn't describe it as religious. And I actually wouldn't describe John the Baptist as religious. I mean, the religious folk in his day were the ones in the temple all looking very smart and doing the right thing and saying the right words. John the Baptist was a wild one. He was out in the desert eating the locusts and the honey, going, you've got to change your heart. The light, the, the, look, to, look to light and, and love, love each other. And um, so I relate, I relate to him because he was a wild one. He was an outcast. He was a path less trodden. He was a true survivor. And his message was all about look up, look up. You know, there, there's, we, all need, we all need a little help. And I think my faith has been that for many years since I was since I was young of saying I probably don't go to church enough. I probably don't know all the right prayers and the right hymn books. But I know that I know that some I know the Almighty exists and I, I sometimes feel it and I need forgiveness and I need help every day. And I want to say thank you to whatever that Almighty is out there and and uh, and ask for help. <laughs> and ask for strength and that that is how my faith is and in answer to you yeah john the baptist still a great hero and i'd rank him alongside the the uh, robin hoods and the whatever although robin hood was fictitious where john baptist <laughs> wasn't <laughs> but uh great people <laughs> and when you look back at all the extraordinary things you've done what do you think's your greatest adventure i think the greatest adventure is a day-to-day -day state of mind of, of, of living that adventure you know we can't we can't define our lives and things gone past you know I'm happy to tell you some stories if you'll ask but if you don't ask you won't get them you know their their stories gone past you know adventure truly is a state of mind and it's how we live in the present today and we have to we have to try and walk with the values that we know are going to best sustain us in a, in a in a world where we need to be survivors and I've just learned through many expeditions many adventures that the things i need around me are um are great friends i need i need a resilient determined never give up attitude i gotta try and be kind because it triumphs and 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 wins through so much it builds bridges with people it's 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 how we define ourselves it builds legacy it's it changes people's lives you know, and, and therefore I want to do the adventure day to day. I want to live in the moment. And I want those qualities to try and be defining qualities to how I live. And that's how I start every day. I, I sort of articulate it not quite as, as thoroughly as that. But I say it on my knees in the morning. Of, I want to try and live like this. And I won't always get it right. But that's a goal. And looking back, what would you say to your eight-year-old self on that first night at prep school? <laughs> I say, oh boy, it's a journey. It's a journey. Don't run from it. You know, I'm not going to say it's, it might be nicer to go home now and not do any of this, but it's a journey. See the long, see the long, the long game. You know, you're going to make, first of all, you're going to make some of the best friends in the world. You're going to come through some storms. The storms are going to feel horrible. They're going to feel dark, lonely and painful, but the storms make us they, where we build our strength. The struggle, struggles, they build the strength. You're going to get to some good places. You're going to have to face a few giants along the way. Don't run from the scary stuff. Do what everyone else doesn't do, which is move towards the scary stuff. And, um, and you've got a great adventure ahead of you. <laughs> Go for it. Bear Grylls, thank you very much for talking to us on Past Imperfect. Oh, you guys are the best. Take care. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the explorer, Bear Grylls. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you can listen back to other interviews with guests including Tom Daly, Keir Starmer and Hanny Gray-Thompson on the Times Radio app or download Past Imperfect wherever you get your podcasts. You can also buy our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.